Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Planting the Seeds, James Africanus Beale Horton. As no one who has been living through 2020 will need to be told, there are few factors that shape human history as much as disease. Many an army has suffered more deaths from sickness than from the enemy, and many a leader has died or been incapacitated at a crucial moment. This particular horseman of the apocalypse is particularly fond of riding out when populations come together, as they constantly do in today's globalized world, and as happened more suddenly in earlier times. We already mentioned in an earlier episode the mass deaths caused by infection when the Europeans invaded what they called the New World, and the horrific mortality rate of enslaved Africans in places like Haiti were due to disease, as well as to overwork and sadistic punishment by the masters. Of course, Europeans were affected too. The soldiers of French armies sent to subdue Haiti considered the assignment to be nearly a death sentence, and colonizers sent to Africa itself frequently fell ill. Nor were newcomers to Africa rendered immune by an African lineage. We saw, for instance, how Alexander Crummel and his family suffered from sicknesses after coming to Liberia. Hence, the subtitle of a work called Physical and Medical Climate and Meteorology of the West Coast of Africa, published in 1867 by James Africanus Beale Horton. After the already lengthy title, the cover adds the promise, with valuable hints to Europeans for the preservation of health in the tropics. This is also the title of the final chapter of the work, which suggests a range of rules and precautions to be taken by European colonizers. There are recommendations about clothing, food and drink, sleeping arrangements, here Horton suggests using mosquito netting, a better idea than he could have suspected, and also ethical conduct. The passions must be regulated because a strict moral principle, such as observed by Christians, is liable to keep one healthy in body as well as soul. Horton knew whereof he spoke, being both a doctor and a frequent patient, who contracted many ailments in the time of his service with the British Army, thanks to poor sanitation in the military camps. He was a doctor in the Army, who was eventually promoted to the rank of Surgeon General. He studied at, and this might sound familiar, King's College London, and then Edinburgh, where he wrote a thesis for his medical degree on the medical topography of the west coast of Africa, including sketches of its botany. But Horton was not a European, he was African, and proudly so, as we can see from his decision to include the word Africanus as part of his name on the title page of his Edinburgh thesis and subsequent publications. He was born in 1835, in Sierra Leone, to parents who were recaptives, as we explained in episode 36, after the end of the British slave trade, British ships patrolled the West African coast and liberated captured Africans, with many of these so-called recaptives settling in Sierra Leone. Horton first studied at Fora Bay College in Freetown, and was one of three outstanding students from there who were sent to study medicine in Britain. It was hoped that these students would be more resistant, if not impervious, to the diseases rampant among British soldiers serving in the African tropics. The regiments in which Horton served 
were averaging something like a 15% attrition rate. But as shown by the publication of his study on physical and medical climate, Horton was not satisfied simply to dispense quinine and sound advice to his military colleagues. He was a scientist who made careful observations of the plant life, soil, epidemiology, and climate of West Africa. In keeping with the theories current in his day, he assumed that such diseases as malaria were caused by poisonous vapors emitted, for example, by moldering vegetation. He also seems to have applied his interest in environmental factors to a topic that has been of more central concern to us in this podcast series, race. For his ideas on racial difference, we need to turn to his most famous work, West African Countries and Peoples, British and Native, which was published only a year after the treatise on climate and adopts the same empirical frame of mind. Again, the subtitle is telling, or actually subtitles, because there are two of them. The first promises a discussion of the requirements for establishing self-government, as recommended in 1865 by the British House of Commons, and we'll come back to this in a bit. The second subtitle is more pithy, saying simply, and a vindication of the African race. This vindication avoids to a great extent the essentializing approach that we've seen in other 19th century thinkers. Horton is notable for his emphasis on the malleability of races, the way that they are affected by the environment and can change over generations, just like animals do. Admittedly, Horton does make comments about race that may strike us as strange and indeed just empirically false. When it comes to mixed-race people, his views are themselves mixed. He pronounces them less healthy and less energetic, but also rises to their defense by refuting claims that they are never upstanding members of society. Like Crummel and Delaney, he also assumes that mixed-race people will inevitably either merge into one or other races, black or white, or gradually die out. But aside from this dubious claim, he generally insists on what he calls the unity of the races, with factors like climate explaining apparently deep-seated differences. Skin color he discards as basically irrelevant, since black skin is just caused by the same pigment that explains freckles and tanned skin in white people who have been in the sun. As for such features as moral tendencies and intellectual capacity, humans do not differ much, if at all, in these respects, and it is only their upbringing that leads to the wide variation that we see in the peoples of the globe. That's the good news. The bad news is that many factors have conspired to make the environment in Africa a disastrous one for its inhabitants. Having emphasized the unhealthiness of the tropics in his work on physical climate, he now adds that the cultural climate of Africa has led to all manner of spiritual maladies. He is particularly horrified by the practice of domestic slavery, that is, the enslaving of Africans by other Africans, which he sees as antithetical to civilization. Where the one exists, he says, it is impossible for the other to thrive, and he identifies domestic slavery as, in every way, the most destructive element in the Gold Coast politics. Another problem is traditional African religion, which for Horton is nothing but heathenism. Between these factors, the effects of constant warfare and exploitation by European powers, the Africans are, in Horton's judgment, rude and barbarous, in a primitive state of ignorance and poverty, and were in a state of utter barbarism until the British came along. Indeed, in Horton's estimation, the benevolent influence of the British has brought many Africans to a condition of semi-civilization. He is particularly impressed by the progress in his native Sierra Leone. It cannot be shown in the world's history that any people with so limited advantages 
has shown such results within 50 years. This, of course, supports his more abstract philosophical point, namely that human nature is the same everywhere, so that even a few years of benevolent oversight and education can work wonders. Sure, the African natives may be backward and brutish, but this was no less true of the British themselves in ancient history before the Romans brought civilization. This allows him to reach the following stirring conclusion. I claim the existence of the attribute of a common humanity in the African or Negro race. The amount of moral and intellectual endowments exhibited him as originally conferred by nature is the same, or nearly so, as that found amongst the European nations, and it is an incontrovertible logical inference that the difference arises entirely from the influences of external circumstances. Truly, natura una et communis omnium est. Since this is the 19th century, he doesn't bother to translate the Latin, so we will. Nature is one and common to all. In developing this thesis, Horton was engaging in a polemic against racist pseudoscientists, men like Karl Vogt, who described the typical African as having a short neck and pendulous belly, which affords a glimmer of the ape beneath the human envelope. Horton laughs this out of court, saying that of the thousands of Africans he's met, none of them fit the grotesque description offered by Vogt. Another sparring partner is the travel writer Richard Burton, whom Horton terms the most determined African hater, on the basis of his luridly racist book, Wanderings in West Africa. Indeed, we can think of Horton's own book on West Africa as a response to Burton's, Horton offering careful observation where Burton aimed at entertaining a white audience who shared his own fiendish hatred against the Negro. Despite this, Horton has plenty of negative things to say about the specific groups who populate West Africa. He announces at the outset that he will restrict himself to the British colonies of Sierra Leone, Lagos, and Gambia, as well as the American settlement of Liberia. He is impressed by the industry and restraint of some of the communities in these regions, but others he deems lazy and corrupt. So, for instance, he draws a stark contrast between the Wolof in the Gambia, who he says are spendthrift and hedonistic, and the Yoruba and Igbo recaptives, who are the reverse. It is perhaps not a coincidence that, as we've already mentioned, both of Horton's parents were Igbo. Still, the fact that Horton is so sensitive to variation and diversity among the native population itself distinguishes him from racist authors like Vogt and Burton, and also from more sympathetic writers who painted all West Africans with a broad brush. A case in point would be Alexander Crummel. As we saw, Crummel ascribed a mobile and plastic nature to the Negro in general. Horton approvingly quotes Crummel on this very topic and agrees that among Africans we can find a passion for imitating others, but tellingly, he ascribes this trait not to all Africans or even all West Africans, but to the Igbo people specifically. So, we can give Horton credit for an awareness that, as we saw earlier in this series, has sometimes been lacking in the study of African philosophy, namely that it is difficult and questionable to generalize about African cultures. In fact, Horton sees that this is true for some of the same topics we discussed regarding pre-colonial African thought, and makes some remarks that seem startlingly prescient in light of those discussions. For instance, he notes the variation between African religions and credits the Igbo, again, with the monotheism that so many later authors detected in African religions. Like Equiano before him, 
Horton hypothesizes that the similarity between Igbo and Abrahamic religious beliefs may be no coincidence, since it is possible that a lost tribe of Israel found its way to West Africa so that Igbo beliefs are thus effectively a form of Judaism. Other ideas mentioned by Horton will ring further bells for us. Like John Mbiti, he discusses limitations on the conception of time. Lacking literacy, the peoples he describes depend on orally transmitted tales and thus have no history, so that successive events, once out of sight, are forever lost. He also reports on theories of personhood, describing ideas of reincarnation in which a person's self can go into a human or animal body. And Horton is sensitive to the differences between African languages spoken in close proximity to each other. While discussing the Gold Coast, or present-day Ghana, he distinguishes between the Chui, spoken by the Akan, and the languages of the Ga and Ewe peoples, noting that these are distinct languages about as different as German, English, and French, if not more so, and each is again subdivided into different dialects. He furthermore hypothesizes that while the Akan tongue has influenced the other two, they are actually more closely related to Yoruba. Here, Horton touches on a topic that was being researched around the same time by another West African scholar named Samuel Ajayi Crowther. We mentioned him briefly in the episode on Crummel. At a young age, Crowther was taken in the domestic slave trade, decried by Horton, and sold to Portuguese buyers, but he was liberated by the British and educated in Sierra Leone at the Fora Bay College, where Horton also studied. Crowther became a pioneering linguist and helped to produce the first Bible in the Yoruba language, which may very well have been the first translation of the whole Bible into a sub-Saharan African language by a native speaker. He also published a text on the vocabulary of this language and the first book ever published on the Igbo tongue. Balancing out Horton's openness to the diversity of West African cultures, there is the undeniable fact that he saw much good in the colonial enterprise that we nowadays take to have been inimical to those cultures. When the British annexed Lagos, he said, we must unhesitatingly state that it was the greatest blessing that could have happened. As a member of the British Armed Forces, he did not shrink from defending violence in the cause of colonial power, stating that, a little despotism is absolutely necessary for governing a semi-barbarous race, as long as the aim is to bring up the governed rapidly in industrial pursuits, education, and general social condition. Ultimately, he thought the British had done far more good than harm. While they had sometimes committed excessive violence, this was because they understood that fear was needed to keep control over a restless native population riven by internal divisions. This brings us back to the first of the two subtitles of Horton's study of West Africa, which tells the reader to expect a treatment of the prospects for self-governance in this region of the world. He praises the British government for its stated aim of gradually withdrawing from its colonies, with the exception of Sierra Leone, and quotes from the minutes of a House of Commons committee on African affairs. In this testimony, it's admitted that it might be 50 years, or even a full century, until the Africans are capable of political independence, but Horton is more optimistic. Radical reforms of the kind he proposes could make it possible in less than a quarter of a century to install in a place like the Gambia, an enlightened native king chosen by universal suffrage. He envisions a gradual transition, in which monarchs are put in overall command over the lesser potentates who now style themselves kings, something Horton finds somewhat ridiculous, since some of them reign over nothing more than a single village. 
In another resonance with topics we discussed earlier, Horton is aware that African peoples often conduct politics in a communitarian fashion. In matters of great interest, he reports, in many cases, a whole nation assembled together for deliberation. So he sees native governance as being a mix of monarchical and republican tendencies. Nonetheless, he insists on the need for a single ruler in the decolonized state of the future in order to keep different factions in line. Note, however, that, as just mentioned, this king is to be chosen by universal suffrage, that is, elected and not simply put in post by the departing colonial power. Horton's plan for the British colonies may be usefully compared to that of Crummel for Liberia. The two agreed about the fundamental value of what they called civilization and about the need to import it into Africa from the outside. Horton says so quite explicitly, it is impossible for a nation to civilize itself, civilization must come from abroad. This side of Horton leads him to condemn indigenous cultural practices. Even the carrying of swaddled infants comes in for his harsh criticism, since it supposedly deforms their bodies. At times, Horton can be almost comically blind to the appeal of traditional African life. In one passage, he complains about the way that the men of the Gold Coast are able to spend most of their time sitting about telling stories, since they subsist on a simple diet and have no ambition for economic advancement, which actually doesn't sound half bad, but it moves Horton to grumble, this shows a very low scale of civilization. To be fair, his critical attitude in this passage is in part based on the unequal distribution of labor between men and women, with more falling on the latter. Horton saw, however, that a brighter future demanded more than the establishment of European habits and institutions on African soil. To flourish, the colonies needed to stop being colonies. Horton provides detailed proposals for a constitution of an independent nation in West Africa and though this is clearly based on the British model, it would be put in place by the votes of Africans. Under his system, the African element would be free to express itself. For the same reason, he complains that under colonial rule, the involvement of natives in the legislative council has been trivial, mere window dressing to disguise a British monopoly on power. Paying tribute to his expertise in botany, then, we might say that Horton wanted to plant the seeds of a strong and independent West Africa. His numerous practical proposals for improvements there, which included the creation of banks and a post office, the use of vaccines, and, yes, the planting of well-chosen crops, like tobacco, were all towards this end. Along the same lines, he envisioned several projects for improving education in the colonies. He wanted to see a medical school established in Sierra Leone, and his old school, the Fora Bay College, transformed into a full-blown university for West Africa. These ideas came to nothing, as did a high school he endowed in his will, which unfortunately never materialized after his death in 1883, but at least Horton died still dreaming of a better future. According to the Nigerian philosopher Olufemi Taiwo, who has celebrated Horton, Crowther, and others as apostles of modernity, simply put, when we shall have devoted to his political, philosophical writings the attention they deserve, we would have to conclude that Horton, was also one of the pioneer political philosophers of the modern age in Africa. Which is not to say that his program for West Africa is beyond criticism. The kind of education Horton wanted to see was modeled closely on what he himself experienced in England and Scotland. Western-style education and acculturation was the only way for Africa to be lifted out of what he called utter darkness and barbarism. 
Writing in 2000, the Kenyan author Gugi Wationgo judged this a failing on Horton's part and contrasted Horton with one of his contemporaries who was more open-minded, able not just to catalog and describe the languages, beliefs, and practices of indigenous Africans as Horton did, but actually to value them. This was Edward Blyden, a colleague of Crummel's in Liberia, quoted with approval by Horton concerning the great strides made by the Liberians in the most challenging of circumstances. For Ngugi Wationgo, Blyden represented a fundamentally different approach than that taken by Horton, especially through placing greater value on African languages. Blyden, writes Ngugi, rejects the assumptions underlying the relationship of Africa to the world, which equates knowledge, modernity, modernization, civilization, progress, development, whatever the name, to an acquisition of European tongues. There are hundreds of languages in Africa and the world, each of which is a unique store of memories and thoughts and experiences which are of benefit to human life. Whether it is right to value Blyden's agenda for the uplift of Africans more highly than Thornton's is a question we'll let you judge for yourself after we've looked at Blyden's own career and ideas next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles